Today's sermon comes from Mark 12, 13 through 27. The word of God speaks to us. And they sent him to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarii and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and, and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the women also died. In the resurrection, will they rise again? When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's word to us. All right. Thanks, Tally. Good morning. Uh, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. have the honor of uh, preaching a good chunk of the time and uh, serving as the lead pastor of Frontline Edmund. I always like to begin this moment the same way. I want us to pray together, me for you, you for me. So let's, let's begin with prayer. We thank you for your word, Father. And, and Jesus, we thank you for your love that is so deep, so real, so present that there is a single area of our life that you uh, in love will not speak to so that we could know what it means to, to know truth and to, to flourish in you. And so I pray in a real way, Spirit of God, you would help me really get out of the way in appropriate ways so we can see the truth and the beauty of, of the gospel and the good news that's here in this text for us. I pray for my friends that you would all give us the gift of open hearts and ears to see what you have for us this morning. Jesus, we pray all of this in your name. Together we say, amen. This week I was, I was thinking about this text, which we all just heard together. And, um, you know, I, I am a big fan of sermon introductions as a preacher. One could say I maybe am too big of a fan of sermon introductions. As a preacher, I was thinking about it even just like this last year, like I've shown you guys clips of 
old Godzilla films when we were in the book of Job, you know? And uh, it wasn't about a year ago that we were talking about metaphors of the church, and it, it was too long. I think we listened to a good, like, 60 to 90 seconds of a whale song of a lost whale, and it made a lot of you sad. Um, I even think we were going through the letters to the churches in the beginning of Revelation, like I actually had our coffee team serve lukewarm coffee so that we could literally taste the message of Jesus to the church in Laodicea about not being lukewarm. Um, All that to say, you know, you just heard what Tally read, like Jesus here is going to speak to how we engage in politics, and he's going to speak to the, the eternal destiny of our marriages and I just think that's enough, right? Like no like clever sermon intro. It's like we're going to talk about politics and we're going to talk about marriage. And with this congregation, I know that you guys care about both those things. So um, that, that's enough. To set some context about what's happening here in the life and the ministry of Jesus, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Here we are in chapter 12. And, and you know, the majority of the first half of this book, it's going over like three years in the life and the ministry of Jesus. But here, we've, we've made this turn in the last few chapters where um, the pace of the story isn't slowing down, but the, the, the passage of time is slowing down considerably because the second half of the book of Mark is just focusing on the final life, or the final week in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And and Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, the center of religious and political power, and he's entered in as king. And what we see, Steve preached so well last week at the beginning of this, and what's going to continue into this week, we see Jesus, as he's entered in with authority, his opponents are confronting him. And we're going to see that, you know, just like we see in earthly warfare that when someone comes at you, um, you know, a battle plan often is set in stages and waves. There's wave upon wave of attack. That's true in spiritual warfare. That's true regarding how Jesus is being attacked. There's wave upon wave of people coming against him. And so we're going to see two waves in this story and, and two groups of people that are attacking Jesus. And they're going to question, first, his allegiances, and second, they're going to question his view of, of the afterlife, the resurrection eternity. So those are essentially the two points. That's how the text flows. That's how we're going to take it. Look at two things, questioning first allegiances and second questioning the afterlife. So first, questioning allegiances. Look at the, we're going to look at the questioners, like the question and then Jesus' answer. And so let's first look at the question, right? Mark 12, 13, and they sent They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Who who are they, right? They is the the high council, the Sanhedrin, the, the men in power over the religious systems of Israel. And so they send these two groups, Pharisees and Herodians, to question Jesus. Some of us might be fairly familiar with Pharisees. Literally, the word Pharisee means the, the set apart ones, right? Which is like gives you insight into their humility, right? Like they're they're named like, hey, we're we're other than, we're better than. They they considered themselves really strict obeyers of the law, so strict that they like added rules upon God's law. God God gave rules. They improved them, quote, you improved them by adding some of their own rules. They, they saw fences and limitations and boundaries, and they added extra boundaries. They were very religious outwardly and concerned with outward appearances, but, but their tension with Jesus again and again came back to the fact that they weren't concerned with inner righteousness. 
And they, and this is important to kind of grasp here, they, they were opposed to Roman rule over Israel. Now, they weren't like all-out revolutionaries, but, but they were opposed to Roman rule over Israel. And so that's the Pharisees. They're coming, but they're coming with this other group. They've been sent with this other group called the Herodians. And they might be new to us and we might not be as familiar, but Herodians were loyalists to the royal family of Israel, the house of Herod. Now this this royal family, the house of Herod, they were like a puppet dynasty in place, put in place by Rome. Right, And so these people, these group of men who were Herodians, loyal to the house of Herod, they weren't concerned with, with religion or God at all. They were concerned with politics and power. They were men of the world. And since the house of Herod, their power was dependent upon Rome, they were put in place by Rome, the Herodians with the house of Herod, they were in partnership with Rome. They were pro-Rome to a large extent. And the house of Herod and Herodians, this group of men, they were unpopular, to put it mildly, by most of the population of Israel. But what we need to know is that the Pharisees and the Herodians, like they, they were polar opposites. They had nothing in common. They viewed spirituality differently. They viewed politics differently. And yet here they are, strange bedfellows, because what the enemy of my enemy is my friend, they both are threatened by the popularity and the power and the influence of Jesus. They're both jealous of Jesus's ministry and they view him as a threat. And so they've joined forces. They have one bipartisan issue and that bipartisan issue is is hating and trying to bring destruction to Jesus. And so that's brought them together. And so they're coming with that unified front to bring Jesus to an end as the thing that is driving them. And when it says that they tried to trap him in his talk, the Greek word there for trap is arugo. And it can be translated probably in, in, a, in a clear way to take by hunting. It has violent connotations. It's got ill intentions, right? Imagine if Jesus is a lion. These men think they're digging a pit with spikes at the bottom that they've covered with grass, and they think that they're leading him to fall in this pit to come to a a violent end. And so their question isn't a question at all. It's an attack. And so here's their question, verse 14. They came to him, and they said to him, Teacher, We know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. (laughs) So it's like, ugh, right? They're just like, just just nauseating flattery. They're just laying it on thick. And, And being the hypocrites that they are, right, their words don't match up with their heart. They have hate in their heart, but honey on their lips. But they think they're like softening up Jesus. They think they're 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 gonna, you know confuse him as to their true intentions. And then they come to the real question. They ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now see, they're, they're asking this really loaded, this really controversial question. It is a huge issue among Israelites at the time. And they aren't asking again because they want an answer. They're asking because they perceive that there is no right answer for Jesus. That whichever way he answers, it's going to go bad for him. He's truly in a lose-lose scenario in their mind. 
And you can just imagine as they ask, them looking at each other with a glimmer in their eye and a smirk on their face, thinking, whatever he says, we've got him. This is checkmate. See, here's the context to their question, right? No nation likes to be subjugated. No nation likes to be conquered. And yet here, Israel has experienced the rule of Rome for, for about 90 years. And every time they pay taxes, it's, it's a cold reminder that they've been conquered. And almost every Jew in Israel hated the thought of paying taxes to Caesar. In fact, many of them refused. And even many Pharisees taught that they were under a moral obligation not to pay Roman tax. And certainly in this crowd listening to these two groups pose this question to Jesus, were zealots who were revolutionaries actively working against Rome. And if there wasn't a zealot in the crowd, and if you were in this crowd, if you weren't a zealot, if you were an average Jew at the time, your heart was with the zealots. See, you see the trap. You can feel it. If Jesus answers that people should pay taxes to Caesar, the crowd, he'll lose. They'll turn against him. They'll say he's a, he's a Roman sympathizer. He's a, any real leader or revolutionary or Messiah. And he'll be accused before the people and the priests. But, but if he says, don't pay the tax... Well, then the Herodians have them, and they can go before Pilate and the Roman authorities and say, hey, you've got a real revolutionary, and he's actively trying to cause a revolt. You've got to kill him, bring him to an end. So does he say pay, and he's seen as supporting Roman subjugation, or does he say don't pay, and he's seen as a revolutionary against Rome? The trap was a good trap. It seems like he's between a rock and a hard place, and yet Jesus, Jesus isn't sweating it, right? Let's look at his answer. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he sees it coming a mile away, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. We've got a picture of this coin that Jesus asks for. And first, I think it's noteworthy that he's not carrying one, that he has to ask his questioners to provide him one. And this denarius, it was, a, it was the most common coin, the most common form of currency. It would be like, you know, us carrying a debit card. Most of us have one. Well, most everybody was going to have a denarius with them in this moment in the history of Israel. It was a small coin. It was silver. And the value it held was the, uh, the value of a day laborer's work for a day, you know. And so it wasn't a ton of money, but it was really common And so Jesus asked, hey, someone give me one of these coins. And they brought him one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar. So in this moment in history, the Caesar was Tiberius. So on that coin, you can see there on the right, that that inscription, what it reads, if it were in English, it would say Tiberius, Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So Caesar Tiberius, he was the son of Caesar Augustus. And so this is his coin that he's minted. That's Tiberius' face, but the inscription around his face is saying, hey, I'm, I'm the son of Augustus who is divine. He's God. I'm the son of a God. And on the flip side, you see over here what it reads it, 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 that translates Pontiff Maxim, which means high priest. 
And so he's also saying, hey, I'm not only the son of, of a God, I'm also the high priest over all Rome. I'm ultimate authority regarding power in my rule, and I'm ultimate authority regarding religion and belief. In that little coin, that common coin, it encompassed all of the pride of Caesar right there in the palm of Jesus' hand. And so Jesus holding this coin in his hand, he says to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Why did did they marvel? Well, what's Jesus' first answer? He says, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, pay the tax. And you can just sense the Pharisees being like, yes, you know, right? Like, we got him. You just feel the thrill rise up in them because they think, oh, you know, we painted him in a quarter. But Jesus is saying, no, pay the tax. You're carrying the coin, guys. You're holding it. Caesar minted it from, from his own rule, his own authority. It's his coin. It's got his face on it. You're benefiting from your citizenship. You're participating in Roman society. Pay the tax. I was reminded of a movie that it's been years and years and years I've seen, but uh, Monty Python, The Life of Brian. There's a scene, I believe it's Pharisees, right? And they're like getting riled up and they, one of them asks, what's Rome ever done for us, right? And they're all upset. Yeah, what has Rome ever done for us? And somebody kind of sheepishly raises their hand and they're like, well, the aqueducts. And I said, well, besides that, you know, and then somebody else after a period of silence, like roads, they made roads, you know, and well, besides roads, irrigation, <laughs> you know, it's safe to walk on the streets at night, you know, and it's a, the wine is pretty good. They just get this list that keeps growing and growing, and it's like, besides the irrigation and the clean waters and the safety to walk streets at night and the good wine, besides all that, what has Rome ever done for us, you know? And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here in his own way. It's like, hey, you're a citizen of, of this empire, and there's benefits that come along with that. You're under the, the rule sovereignly of God of this empire, and there's things that they're providing you as a citizen. You pay the tax. You participate as a citizen, but he doesn't stop there. <laughs> Most importantly, he doesn't stop there. This is no victory for the Pharisees. He goes on to say, render unto gods the thing that are gods. See, he's saying, look, this denarius, this coin holds the image of Caesar. It belongs to him, sure. But you, Jesus says, you bear the image of God. He made you, you belong to him. Jesus is, is calling their minds back to Genesis, the very beginning, chapter 127. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. See, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, hey, you give your due to Caesar, but he's telling the Herodians, hey, you give your due to God. Author and theologian Kent Hughes, who wrote a great commentary on the book of Mark, he says this about what Jesus has to say here. The statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but is even today universally claimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. It was decisive and determinative in shaping Western civilization. 
See, what Jesus is saying here to all his listeners, what he's saying to us today is he's giving us an affirmation, but more importantly, he's giving us a warning. He's giving us an affirmation as we've seen that, hey, God has sovereignly placed you where you live. If that's Mumbai, India, and you're planning a church there, and you're a citizen of India, and you live in one of the biggest cities of the world, you, you be a citizen there. As one theologian said, the best citizens of earth are actually citizens of heaven. You fight for its flourishing. You shine a light into darkness where you find yourself living. That's the affirmation. But he gives a warning, more importantly, and the warning is, hey, keep your allegiances, keep your hopes, keep your citizenship in order. Again, I'm reminded of what Paul says in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we're expecting a Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying here, yeah, participate as a citizen where God has placed you on this earth, but never forget that ultimately you belong to God. You're a citizen of heaven. Everything must be worked out from that fact. And as we forget that, lots of things get sideways. And when I even think about the last, let's say, eight years in the history of, of the church, our local church, right? So many like faults and tears and tears have come from missing the wisdom of what Jesus says here. We should give our country its due honor and engagement. Yes and amen. And yet we must give God everything and give him first and keep our allegiances in order. There's this missionary and, and author named Leslie Newbegin, and he wrote in the 70s that he predicted as the West would like drift into being more and more secular, that what we would see happen is that politics would become the new religion of the West. It's like, I think you could add the gift of being prophetic to his list of accomplishments, right? We can all fall into the trap of making our, our citizenship as Americans functionally religion. I think many of us, if not all of us, at sometimes, and I know I do, and I'm, I'm, I'm holding this before the Lord this week and being convicted of specific things, but, but our view of right and wrong and truth and light can be at times more influenced by our political party than Jesus. And I think all of us, if we're honest, can come to Jesus like these Herodians, like these Pharisees, seeking to control him and corner him and, and force him into our will and not coming before him as king and saying, hey, your kingdom come, your will be done. One of my favorite stories in scripture, and I think one of the most <laughs> enlightening moments in scripture happens in Joshua chapter five. And the context is God has led his people into, he's beginning to lead his people into the promised land. Joshua is their leader and they're about to fight one of their first battles, which is not gonna require much of them. God's gonna flex, he's gonna move on their behalf. But the night before the battle, this happens. The leader of God's people, Joshua, is by himself. And it says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said to him, no. 
but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to them, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Man, I love that story. Joshua's like, hey, are you on my team or their team? No. I'm on my own team, right? The question is, are you on my team or not? And so just to be real specific, how silly for us to say, Jesus, are you a Democrat or Republican? No. George Washington wouldn't answer that question. Jesus Christ certainly is not going to, right? In light of this passage, Here's some thoughts that I'm considering this week that I'd invite you to consider. That are just some diagnostic questions. I think if, if I'm getting these allegiances out of order, this is perhaps what it looks like. Am I able to be in friendship and fellowship with someone who has a different political view than me? If that answer is no, then I might have those allegiances out of order. Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, was a tax collector actively supporting Roman rule. Simon the Zealot was actively trying to revolt against Rome, yet they both followed Jesus and were transformed by him and were brothers. Here's a question. Am I, am I consumed by fear and anger and anxiety over political happenings? Or do I look at the state of our country and, and does that make a place for me to take my concerns to Jesus in prayer and trust him that he's on his throne? Or how about this? When I do engage in politics and conversation and engagement around politics, do I do so in a way that shines the light of Christ? Donald English wrote this in 1992. He said, governments need consistently the reminder which Christians can give that only God ultimately reigns. And all their policies should be worked out in relation to that. In particular, one wonders whether the growing power and claims of nationalism around the world do not need sharp examination by this criterion from Jesus. All right, so that's the first thing. Quickly, the second thing. There's a question about the afterlife. Questioning the afterlife. Here's the question. Or here are the questioners, I should say, first. We have the Pharisees and the Herodians, they just came with their question. Jesus answered it in, in such wisdom, they leave marveling at him. But then another group enters the scene. We see it in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees are like the ruling aristocratic party of ancient Israel. They were made up of like the leading families in society. They were connected to the high priests. They actually had authority over the temple. Remember, Jesus just cleansed that temple. So you understand why they're coming to challenge Jesus. They're all about power and prestige. They were wealthy and worldly. They were known for being really arrogant and and really lacking mercy. They were completely harsh with anyone that broke the law. 
A historian named Josephus, who, who wrote about this time in Israel's history, he said, Sadducees are even among themselves rather boorish in their behavior, and in their intercourse with their peers are as rude as aliens. I'm not 100% sure what he's trying to say there. They're just not a good hang. They don't even like each other, right? They're just snobby and, and stuck up, and the, even their friends don't get along, right? I, as an E.B. White fan, the book The Outsiders, uh, my mind goes to the Southside Socials, right? Just like just the, the rich kid villains of ancient Israel society. And here they are, the Sadducees, and they're coming to Jesus, and they're mean-spirited, and they're superior, and they're coming looking down on him as this country bumpkin from Nazareth, thinking, like, what gives you the right to wield any power? We're the ones running the show here. And their question is going to, in part, be rooted in the fact that they have a very limited view of Scripture. They only hold that the first five scrolls, the Torah, are, are God's words. So anything else in the Old Testament, no Psalms, no Jonah, no Isaiah, any other book they just reject as having any authority, but the first five books of the Bible they hold on to. And misinterpreting those first five books then, they believe in like zero spiritual realm. They have no belief for like angels or demons or heaven or hell. And so if you know one thing about the Sadducees, if you went to like Sunday school as a kid, it's like the most helpful reminder. You know, our Sunday school teacher taught us that the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that the, this life was the end of, of all life. There was no hope for an afterlife, no hope for eternity. And so with that belief in mind, they come questioning Jesus to make him look foolish because they believe he believed something foolish, which is the resurrection. And so they have quite the question. Verse 18, the Sadducees came to him who say there's no resurrection and they ask him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Here's the question. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, ha ha, right? You can just imagine them looking at each other, laughing. When they rise, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So their question is rooted in an a Old Testament law that's referred to as the, the Leveret Law. It means the brother-in-law law. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it was, it was a law given in a really beautiful way that I think in a beautiful way points to the resurrection. There's a gospel implied in it, which is, let's say there's a brother, and he's married to a, a, a woman, and, and he passes away, and there are no children, that if he has a brother or a family member who doesn't have a wife, that man can should take her as a wife. And not only should he take her as a wife, but the first son that they bear will be considered the son of his brother who passed away. Carry his name, carry his legacy, carry his standing in society. So the Sadducees take this promise from the law and they make up this scenario. Like, well, this woman marries a brother, he dies, he dies seven times, right? Just imagine how stressed the fifth brother would be. Like, he just knew how this was going to play out for him. But they're 
posing this question and saying, how stupid is it to believe in a resurrection, Jesus? It would be chaos. The Old Testament teaches us, it gives us this law, this brother-in-law law, that, that, that a widow should marry a relative, a brother. But the Old Testament also teaches us that a, a husband shouldn't have more than one wife and a wife shouldn't have more than one husband. And so if the resurrection happens, th- those things are mutually exclusive. It's silly. It's silly to believe in an afterlife, an eternity. It goes against God's law is how they're coming at Jesus. And so Jesus answers. <laughs> I love it. Verse 24. And he said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. I love it. It's just super refreshing in a cultural moment where like the, the worst thing you can do is to just flatly tell somebody they're wrong about something. Jesus has no qualms about that. He's like, yeah, point one, you're wrong. I'm right. Point two, you don't know scripture nor the power of God. Full stop. You know? Like he's not pulling any punches. Point three, Jesus answers their question. And he talks about the power of God. And he says, for when they rise from the dead, verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And again, you are quite wrong. See, Jesus brings up this account of the bush, this opening story in Exodus. And I I love it that Jesus is even in his confrontation of these men who are so wrong. He's being compassionate. He's not just trying to win the argument. He's trying to win their hearts. And he's saying, okay, look, you guys only believe in the first five books of the Bible, which you don't even know very well. Well, I'll meet you there and I'll take examples from those first five books so you can see the truth that there is a resurrection. There is an eternity in God. You need to see the power of God. And he brings up God introducing himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he's saying, how ludicrous would it be for God to define himself in relation to men who no longer exist? How ridiculous would it be for God to make covenant promises with men who who those covenant promises would come to an end because they would come to an end? No, no, indeed you are so wrong that the power and the promises of God endure and death itself cannot bring them to an end. Jesus is saying that to deny eternal life, to deny a resurrection, is simply to deny God in his character and his power. See, this is, the, this is the problem of the Sadducees, is they have such a small view of God, they couldn't imagine a heaven. They couldn't imagine something more than what they could see and taste and feel that was in front of them. Their, their small view of God prevented them to, from having any kind of just crumb of faith. And Jesus confronts that small view. This is what he's doing here in verse 25. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. See, remember, they don't believe in angels either. Jesus is just poking on all the ways they're wrong. He's not saying, hey, we become angels. 
upon death, but he's saying upon resurrection and eternal life in God, our lives will be like theirs, meaning that we will know his, his fulfillment and his wonder and his power fully forever. I think as we wrap up, this is what this means for us. This is the danger of the Sadducees, that they are so enamored with the present in God's gifts that they lose sight of the bigness and the wonder and the power of God, the giver. See, and, and they apply the problem of eternity to marriage. And I think that's a, a good place to meet them in, in their error, Right? Because we can, we can do that. We can look at marriage as ultimate, that our life is ultimately about marriage, finding a spouse or having the perfect and right marriage. And we can get it backwards. Anna and I were having this conversation this week where it's so easy to, to look at our faith and think that our faith exists to support our marriage, not our marriage exists to help us be faithful in our faith. But when we see Jesus' words here that our earthly marriages will come to an end, like, I don't want to over-spiritualize that and not recognize that that can be shocking news. Maybe, you know, maybe that sounds like good news. Maybe Anna, after this week with me, is like, thank God I'm not going to be married to David forever. (laughs) But I'm also thinking of the time I sat down with uh, one of my aunts, who's just so precious, and she had been married to her husband for over 50 years and he had passed away and she was just honestly expressing her heart and thinking about heaven more than ever because that's where Roy was and she like all of us would would think well in light of what Jesus says here if I'm not going to be married to Roy for all eternity how can it be so good if I'm not going to still have my marriage when I see him again like what does that mean what's what's our relationship going to be like See, this is the truth. The Bible does not teach that there will be no marriage in heaven. The Bible teaches that there will be perfect marriage in heaven, that there will be one marriage in heaven, that it will be the marriage of the church with Christ. And see, Paul links human marriage, earthly marriage, to the high reality that it mirrors, that it points to in Ephesians 5. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Again, we can think that Jesus and the church exist to to serve our marriage, and yet it's quite the opposite, right? Our marriage exists to prepare us to serve Christ and the church. Maybe by way of illustration that could be helpful, like marriage is like a picture that you carry with you to to remind you of a beautiful reality. Like in my office, I have pictures of my children because they're often not there in my office. But I see them and I'm reminded of them, what's waiting for me at home. It would be weird if I walked through the front door of my house carrying a picture of my kids and just looking at the picture and not just experiencing my kids, right? marriage would serve as the same way it does serve in the same way it's a picture it's an echo it's a signpost pointing us to the the perfect eternal reality of paradise that we will know when we are with Christ fully and forever theologian Drake Whitchurch puts it this way in his book Waking from Earth he says the purpose of marriage is not to replace heaven but to prepare us for it 
So Anna and I are like best friends. She's the closest person to me in the world. When We're both in Christ. And so when we go meet with Jesus or when he comes back to make all things new, whichever comes first, like what's going to be our relationship? Are we going to lose our love for each other? Are we going to grow apart? Not by no means, right? I think our best day as a married couple will pale in comparison to the richness of our relationship in heaven. Our relationship will transcend like mere earthly marriage. It will be perfect. All relationships will be perfect. Randy Alcorn puts it this way. He says, God usually doesn't replace his original creation, but when he does, he replaces it with something that is far better, never worse. Being married to Christ will be the ultimate thrill. I was reminded of this moment in the last few years of my life where my father, he gave me a really cool bag for Christmas. And I, I loved it and I carried it. And my mom began to ask me like, hey, how's that, how's that bag working out? And I'm like, oh, I love it. It's still great. It's like four years later. My dad would be like, hey, how's that bag I gave you? Do you love it? And I'm like, I love it. It's great. And then finally, like after a year of that question coming up, my mom was like, hey, tell your dad you're ready for a new bag. I was like, okay. Whatever, you know? And so you know, maybe a month later, my dad asks, like, hey, how's that bag working out that I got you? And I'm like, well, yeah, it's okay. And he was like, well, do you need a new one? I'm like, sure. I didn't. I didn't think I did. But then from behind his desk, he pulls out, like, I don't know much about bags, but it's like the Cadillac of bags. And he needed me to say, hey, what I've been carrying has served me up to this point, but there's, I need to let go of it to receive something better. It was a good gift, but my father had something even better for me to receive. That's like marriage on this earth. It's, it's good. Thank God for it. And yet eternity, we'll be able to lay that down because we'll receive something that, as Paul said, is a mystery, but it's even better than the best marriage here on earth. So our marriages, our intimacy in marriage, our country, our patriotism, our citizenship here in the United States, all good things, and yet not ultimate, not eternal. So as we close, here's some things to consider, right? And so this is what I'm struggling with. Like, I think I've preached and I've, I've looked out for myself and been really aware that I don't want to be a modern-day Pharisee. I don't want to be self-righteous. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And yet, I think a danger that we've neglected as the church is looking out that we're not modern day Sadducees. Meaning that maybe we actually, unlike the Sadducees, proclaim a belief in a resurrection and eternal life in a heaven to come. But when we look at our lives, it actually shows no evidence that we believe and are living for that. And so with that in mind, if we truly believe in the resurrection and by God's power, the best is yet to come, what does that mean for our sexuality? What does it mean to to trust God that there's something better if we're single than sex and we can wait and be celibate like Jesus was celibate and had the most powerful, filling life in all of history and yet never made love? If we truly believe in the resurrection and by God's power, the best is yet to come, what would it mean for our marriages? that we would seek to serve and love and and reflect that through our relationship, it's proclaiming a picture of the good in God that is to come. What would it mean 
If we truly believe in the resurrection and by God's power, the best is yet to come for our civic engagement and our politics and how we lived out our citizenship, how we shared our faith, how we stewarded our things and lived out generosity. So I think as we stand together, that should be our one primary prayer. Jesus, would you help us have faith to live in light of our true citizenship in heaven? Believe in your power that the best is yet to come. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would shape and form us through the words of Christ Jesus here. That we would remember our citizenship in heaven. Remember the hope that lies before us and that all aspects of our life, our relationships, our citizenship would, would shine the light of your truth and your kingdom. And so Jesus, we pray as you taught us to pray, Father, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Together we said, amen.